This is the Rise Up Doyans podcast with your host, Yvette Cook-Darby. Welcome to this episode of Rise Up Doyen. If you're with us for the first time and you're wondering, what's a doyen? Well, it's quite simply an accomplished, sophisticated woman, a leader who's operating at the top of her game. She's been around a while. Maybe she was a trailblazer, but she has a plethora of knowledge and wisdom to share with our listening audience. I'm Yvette Cook-Darby. I'm the founder and creator of Rise Up Doyans, which is really all about helping women lift women and helping women rise to that next level so that we're all maximizing our performance. I think we need more women in the C-suite. I think we need more women entrepreneurs. And personally, I just have a desire to see women do phenomenal things and have phenomenal accomplishments. So as you tune in, you're going to hear from some amazing doyens who've done just that. And it's my wish that by listening to their stories, you'll be inspired. I'm really excited about my guest today. If you've tuned in for the first time, I call my studio the ladies room. So we are here in the ladies room having some tea and just chatting about life and what it looks like from the very beginning to get to where you want to be ultimately on that journey. So joining me today is Edith Love, founder and CEO of E-Love and Associates. Edith, welcome to Rise Up Doyens. Hello, Yvette. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm really, really excited to have you here with us today. Edith, your story, like many, is so extraordinary, uh, but it's your story. So give our listeners a little bit of a background on how you came to your journey or when your journey began and and, and hit some of the highlights of some of the things that you really want to share. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Well, my journey has definitely been, uh, you know, quite amazing. I've had a lot of highs and I've had some lows, but most importantly, I had a lot of resilience and was very determined to accomplish some great things in life. I am, you know, the youngest of five and I'm the first of my siblings to go to college. Well, that's, that, that's, congratulations on that. That's huge. Thank you. I'm a native of New Orleans, Louisiana, but I've been living in the Atlanta area for a little over 20 something years. I'll say 23 years. And, uh, you know, right out of college, undergraduate school, I came to Clark Atlanta to go to grad school. And I knew that I wanted to do something in the nonprofit sector because I really enjoyed working with uh, organizations that were about really helping people, people advance their life, improve the quality of people's lives, and also to just really make a difference. So I said, what better way to fulfill my passion in helping others and at the same time make it out of a career? So early on in my career, I was very fortunate to work uh, with an organization uh, that the National Football League had approached about doing a youth education town center in all the Super Bowl host cities. So when I was asked to, you know, step on board as the deputy director, by then I had had, you know, about maybe eight years in the nonprofit sector working in project management and grants, and also nonprofit startups. So I started working with the National Football League Charities uh, initiative that they called the NFL Youth Education Town. 
And it was these, like I said, uh, state-of-the-art uh, multi-million-dollar youth facilities that they will build in every Super Bowl host city in some of the most impoverished communities in that particular city. So Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta NFL Youth Education Center, excuse me, was actually uh, built in the Summer Hill Grant Park community. And that was after Atlanta had hosted the Super Bowl early back in the, I think it was uh, two, 1992, I believe. But uh, after setting up that particular project from the ground up, they then asked me to go to New Orleans, which at that time they did not know that that was my native city, to set up the NFL youth project in that city. And that particular site was located in the same housing development project that I grew up in. So it was great to be able to go back. Absolutely. So, so they had no idea, right, yeah. Edith, when, when, when they gave you that opportunity that that was home for you. Right. They had wow. no idea. So talk about coming full circle. You were able to go back to your home community and participate in bringing a fabulous program there for youth. That's fantastic. Absolutely. It was awesome. And uh, it was just the right thing to do. I mean, I had loved Atlanta and I was like, wow, I don't want to go. But it's a great opportunity to make sure that a project like that gets started off on the right foot and be able to, you know, really make a legacy there. So it was very important for me to do that. So that project got up successfully and continued to work with the NFL. Then I relocated to New York, was doing some other projects for them. And then I got started with the Education Development Center, working with their initiative called TV411. It was a GED prep uh, educational television show, and it was aired on uh, all the public television stations um, throughout the USA. And I was responsible for really helping from start to finish putting together uh, multimedia material and content for the show, and then actually working with the distribution side. So that was very interesting, and I got to meet a lot of people working in the education arena still, but his focus was on, the focus was actually on um, GED. So let, let, let's go back for a second, Edith, mm-hmm. because I know our listeners are probably thinking, first of all, it, you know, it, it must not have been very easy to get in with the NFL opportunity. And then my question to you is, how was it for women back then in the NFL? And did you face any challenges being a woman? I know you were doing project management and you weren't directly working for the NFL, but it was NFL charity. So talk to our listeners a little bit about what was that like? It was a very, uh, I would say, an eye opener for me because, you know, it was a strange dynamic. I was working on the charitable side of the NFL, but my interaction and the powers that be and the main decision makers were all males, white males to be exact on the for-profit side. Mm -hmm. So uh, you had myself and another lady that was over the site in Los Angeles uh, working. We were two women of color uh, working on this charitable side, putting together this multi-million dollar initiative and building the relationships in the community. But all the, the recommendations were made and we had the titles but all the decisions really came from the for-profit side and were made uh-huh. by people that were not in the community working with 
that particular demographic and really didn't understand what types of programming would be best. Uh, so it was very challenging and sometimes frustrating because you were having to to justify and explain why we, you know, you felt, hey, we should go in direct this direction as opposed to that direction. So that was really hard. Uh, and then knowing that you were the minority of the minority within that particular environment was very, very challenging. So talk to us a little bit about, I mean, that sounds like that was a very challenging um, situation to be in. So how did you make that, how did you muster through that, Edith, especially when you're passionate about youth and the programming, yet you have people making decisions that aren't necessarily, that don't necessarily have their feet on the ground. How did you get through that? I mean, well, first of all, how long were you there? And then Give us a few tips of things that help you navigate that territory. Well, I was there for 10 years. Um, that included both projects that I developed from the ground up, the Atlanta project, as well as the New Orleans NFL youth site. And how I got through it was I just felt like if I'm going to be a part of this, if I'm going to be the face as the ED of both of these projects, then I need to know that I am going to have a voice in how the programs operate and what is involved in the day-to-day because we're here to make an impact. And if I can't be a part of that, if I can't have full autonomy to make that happen, then maybe I'm not the best person to be in this role. I took it a step further and established a local advisory board. Mm-hmm. I said, smart. I need to be able to make sure that I have allies of people that understand what's going on in this particular community, because this particular program model might not necessarily be the same for the Los Angeles. And then thereafter, they had set up several other sites across the USA and super, other Super Bowl host cities. So I just needed to make sure that I developed a model for the Atlanta project and the New Orleans project that would be specifically tailored to meet the needs of that particular community and to serve those youth in that area, the youth and the families. So after I assembled that advisory board, I pretty much had a lot more support behind me and was able to push a lot of things through um, because of, you know, my my vision and in, in, in understanding the importance of having that support, that local support that the National Football League pretty much never even thought that I would be able, that we would, that that should be existing because the other projects before then never had any local advisory support. Right. So you made them local to the market, which makes sense. You know, localization, I think, is key, especially exactly. when you have a national program like that, that you're moving from market to market. So any regrets about the way anything was handled during that time? There's any time that you look back and you go, man, you know, I wish perhaps I would have handled some things differently? I mean, how do you feel about how you handled uh, the situations that were challenging for you? Yeah, I definitely have a lot of regrets. Um, You know, by being a part of both projects from the ground up, there were a lot of things during the capital project uh, phase, as well as the once the project was up and running, whenever the Super Bowl returned, There were opportunities to get additional funding for the project. So for me, my biggest regret was really not being able to um, have 
a really good uh, level of support in the New Orleans area, like I had set up in Atlanta. I felt like the Atlanta project, um, because it was the first project of the two that I did, uh, it was a different dynamic with the city as opposed to New Orleans was a little bit different, didn't have the support that I needed and was not as successful in setting up the local advisory boards. I had to work with a lot of the local politicians. I got it. So I wasn't able to really navigate a lot of things that I probably should have being that that dynamic was completely different and a lot of politics were involved. That was one of my biggest thing, not being able to garner that support on the front end, as opposed to waiting until the project get up and running and then had all the little political fights and um, territorial issues initially, you know, with the New Orleans project. It was just extremely challenging for me to. to was this post Katrina? Yeah, no, yeah, this was way post Katrina. Okay. Uh, this was like in 1990, what, I would say. Nine, 1999. So let me ask you this. Um, and we're going to go, in, and I really want to weave our way up into what you're doing now because I, I think our listeners want to know um, where you went from that point. But before we move off of that, any advice to women who are interested in careers in sports in general? Yeah, I would definitely say, uh, you know, recognize that it's still a male-dominating industry. But also know that, uh, you know, if you are 100 percent prepared and know exactly what direction of sports you want to go into, I would definitely say build your network and get to know the right people and network with those people to get in. Even if it's just through internships at first, I pretty much was approached about the position. Um, It's, you know, I was fortunate and I didn't have a desire to work. And on the charitable side of the sports industry, it just kind of fell in my lap. But I do, uh, I have witnessed over the years, several, you know, women trying to get in the industry. And my best advice would be just be prepared, but also build your network. And don't be afraid to just volunteer your time to do some internships. uh, Because what you might think, oh, okay, I definitely want to do NFL, but then you might have an opportunity to probably work on the major league baseball side. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, all right. So then you were doing the education TV 411 and talk to us a little bit after what happened after that. Well, for me, um, you know, I was already in New York with the NFL, By then they had asked me to, to come on corporate side and was doing some special event stuff. And I just wasn't passionate about that. So I got on with TV 411, and I really enjoyed working on that project. Um, but while I was with the NFL through those 10 years, um, the vision that I had for EL and so how it was birthed was really through players coming to me saying, hey, could you help us start our foundation? That's how EL and Associates, so EL and Associates was in the making for years, even when I was working full time with the National Football League. And even after I left and went on to work with TV 411, players were always calling me saying, hey, we really need help. My wife and I want to start a charitable foundation. 
Can you help us? We were told that you're the person to go to. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so I think that's really important for some of our listeners to know that even though that wasn't your role, you built a reputation, right? And obviously there was a lot of respect that um, the guys in the league had for you so that even after you were gone, mm-hmm. they felt compelled to call on you for advice. That's fabulous. I think that, that that's a great message that even though you're doing one job, you really could be setting yourself up for something else, right? Exactly. That's what happened. And to be honest with you, I did it for free. Wow. wow. I did it for free for a very long time for several players. And then one of my formal NFL board members called me one day about another player that wanted to start his charity. And he said, well, you got to let him know how much you're going to charge him. And I said, oh, charge him. I said, well, I didn't charge the others. He said, Edith, you didn't charge those guys. I was like, no, was I supposed to? At that time, you know, I was still working with the NFL when it first, when the requests first started coming in. And I thought it was a conflict of interest. So I was like, I can't do that. He's like, no, 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 no. They're asking you to set up in your own time, in your own time, their charity. That is nothing to do with you running the NFL Youth Education Child Project. No, you need to start charging these players. And I think, Edith, I think right there brings up something else that I've talked to um, some other women about is how as women, we don't necessarily value our talents and our gifts, and we seem to want to give it away freely. And so what's your advice on balancing that? How do you balance between a friend approaches you and asks you for help versus in all those situations, I'm assuming those players could have afforded to pay you. Yes. And none of them offered. (laughs) And they didn't offer, which says you should have asked. Yes, exactly. Um, I would say the best advice when you are working with friends Usually what I do with my friends, and I do this today, uh, I try to work out a barter system with my friends because usually the people that are in my professional network, my friends and, you know, colleagues, uh, they all are very successful in their own right. And they have a skill or a talent that I might lean on from time to time. So I always say to them, okay, let's work out a barter here. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And they're like, okay, we can do that. Uh, and then everybody else pays. And everybody else pays. <laughs> that's exactly how it works. So if, if we have someone that's um, um, a, a budding entrepreneur, and we're going to hear more about EL and associates in a moment, but as a budding entrepreneur, someone who's just starting out, maybe don't have a lot of experience, what's your advice to them about payment? in seeking paid jobs, paid side gigs, or or just getting paid for the work they're doing without a long record? I would say they need to go in with some of their accomplishments from their previous jobs and say, hey, I'm just starting out, but this is my pay skill because I have demonstrated over the past several years and in my work in my professional work with a nine to five, in my professional nine to five job, this is really my area of expertise. I have the training and the credentials. So although I'm just starting off as an entrepreneur and you're my first paid client, my credentials is what drive what I charge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so your advice is do charge. Do charge. Absolutely okay. charge. <laughs> it's okay to do a, a couple of freebies, but be selective about what those are. But I say you still need to have some type of pricing already in place and make sure that they, they pay, even if you give them a discount. 
Okay. So we, we know a little bit about E-Love and Associates in the, um, in the beginning. So talk to us about how this has grown and flourished and how long have you had E-Love and Associates? Honestly, E.L. and Associates has been around for, I would think, who I started it, like I said, uh, when I relocated to New York. So it's been around for about 15 years, but I will be honest 15. with you, but 15. That's right, 15. 15 okay, years. not 50, 15. 15. Okay. So 15 <laughs> I just want to make sure. Yeah, it's been around 15 years, uh, but I'm going to be honest with you, I've had to, you know, restarted several times. Okay. okay. Because when I initially started EL and Associates, the whole purpose of my business was to help people with net worth start their own charities. So it was really catering to professional athletes. So my mission statement 15 years ago was helping professional athletes and celebrities start their own foundations. Okay. Um, And then maybe about Five years after that, uh, you know, because I wasn't charging anyone, I wasn't making any money, I wasn't making any traction. And you were doing that full time? And I was doing it full time, and I was doing it for free. And I said, okay, I'll do a couple of freebies. I mean, the work was good, the quality of my work was good, but I have to demand that people pay me for my worth and not necessarily just continue to give it out free. Since I'm doing this full time, I wasn't making any money. So I revamped it maybe about five or six years later. And then uh, one of my clients, I finally got a couple of clients and one client said, hey, you really need to just say you're going to just help people start charities and just do all the other. Go broader. Go broader and and also provide some other services because you have several areas of expertise Mm -hmm. in the nonprofit arena. And. At that time, I had a vision to do some things globally, and I said, well, I got to understand business a little bit better. So I decided to go back and get my executive MBA from Emory University, and then now EL and Associates in full swing is still growing, but uh, I finally figured out, you know, through trial and error, what direction I need to go into, what, what area I need to stick to to be able to really uh, build it at the level I wanted to grow. So let's talk about this um, this executive MBA because I'm, some of the young ladies that I mentor are considering going back to school. They've been out a couple of years and are thinking about going back and getting their master's. Um, what's your overall broad thought about that? And then how did it affect you or impact you personally? Well, I would definitely say to answer your first question, just tell them to do it. Do just it. do Especially it. Especially yeah. if it's in alignment what, what they're trying to accomplish, whether it's with their entrepreneur hat or, you know, working for a company. But if it's in alignment with your vision and your mission of what you want for your life professionally, I would say go do it. And um, don't be afraid. For me, I had already had a master's. I got my first master's from Clark Atlanta University. So, so I Emory was, was your second master's. Yes. Okay. And I was in my, my 40s when I did oh, it. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, I just got my executive MBA in 2015. I started in 2013 and um, I had to pray about it because I was like, wow, I haven't been to school in a while. And then I'm going back and get an MBA and I didn't have any, you know, basic accounting or finance classes in my undergrad because that was not my career track. 
and neither did I have it in my graduate, my first grad, my first master's is in public administration. So I was like, wow, this is going to be very, very hard. But I prayed about it and I said, God, if this is for me, you know, you would allow me to be accepted. And from there, I will stick, I will stick with it. And it happened. And the executive program was great because there were people in the program that were around the same age as I was, or even older. Mm-hmm. And everybody was either trying to go back because their company was paying for them to be there or because they were entrepreneurs and just needed that extra uh, education. So it was like making an investment in yourself. It was truly an investment. It was yeah. truly an investment. And I have no regrets. And um you know, it's been great because now I can manage my own accounting, my books for my company. I don't have to outsource that. And now I understand if I want to do business um, outside of the USA, I know the steps to go about doing that. And just to stay abreast on, you know, things in, in the business world, you know, I definitely uh, attend a lot of the small business administration workshops. And then because I'm a former graduate of Emory, they allow you to come to a lot of their professional development uh, workshops and, and, and um, so you also ex- things like yeah, that. So you expanded your network. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, That's exactly what, oh, which was extremely needed. <laughs> oh, you know, I tell people all the time that your, your, your network really is your net worth. Because I agree. I mean, think about that. I mean, I, I think about people that'll call and say, Hey, I have this issue. Can you refer me to someone? And I'll put my thinking hat on. And and in most cases, I can think of someone to refer them to. And it's simply because of, you know, 10 years in the Atlanta market and building a, a, you know, a very vast network. Mm -hmm. They may not all be personal friends that I talk to once a month or even annually, but with the relationship factor, you can still make a referral or pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, do you know someone that can help with this? So I think having that network is so critically important. And so talk to us about as an entrepreneur, what are some of the key things? We've talked a little bit about that education, that formal education. What are some other key elements that you think are essential for success as an entrepreneur? I think as an entrepreneur, you have to always be willing to take risks, even if it may be out of your comfort zone. Um, just do your research. If someone say, hey, you might want to look at going into this direction, you know, do your research, figure it out. It's, it's, it fits in with your plan. But don't be afraid to take risks and do things differently. And definitely don't be afraid to, to learn new ways of doing things. You know, with technology today, I mean, I am definitely not um, a social media person, you know, because I feel like, oh, I don't want people to know my personal business. <laughs> but I recognize if I'm going to, you know, social media is a, a definitely the way to go to brand your business, your yeah. business, yeah. Uh, whether it's through Instagram, whether it's through uh, Twitter. It's just another platform to really build your business and build your brand and bring awareness about what you're doing. So I need to understand that I got to get over my issue with social media and just understand that this is important for my business and keep the two separate. Uh, But definitely, I would say, don't be afraid to take risks. And also, I would say it's very important to know 
your product to the fullest and know how to operate all different uh, functions of your business, even if it's not your expertise. Mm-hmm. And have some familiarity with it, right? You know, understand the accounting piece. Even if you outsource it, you still need to understand how to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the strongest lessons. You know, I, that I have the utmost respect for Oprah because, you know, she still to this day signs all her checks. <laughs> Right. Exactly. You got to know where that money's going, you right? Know where the money's and how going. much is coming in. And how much is coming in, but you have to be a part. You have to just understand all different functions of a business and not even if you if you're the talent, you and it's your business, you still need to understand all the different functions of the business. And then the other third advice which I think is one of the most important things and we've already talked about it is networking. Get out there and network and uh, see how you can connect with people so you all can support each other. So, Edith, how important is it to have a mentor, and have you had a mentor or mentors? Yes, I've had several mentors, uh, and having a mentor is extremely important. And for me, um, you know, some of my mentors have been men, um, but uh, most have been females, and I am the type of person, I have no problem asking someone to be my mentor. Uh, as opposed to having, you know, officially be be a part of some type of group where you get a mentor. I basically research people if they're doing something I want to do or if they're in an industry that I'm trying to tap into. I say, hey, I could really learn from you because you do this so well. Have you ever reached out to someone that you did not know from mentoring? Yes. How, how did you do that? I went through my Emory network um, and actually she is my mentor today, but she says to me, no, we, we both help each other. I was like, okay, but I really <laughs> it's a mutual mentorship. Yes. I love but, those. Um, Dana Brown Lee uh, owns her own. She's a African-American woman and she graduated from Emory as well. And she uh, executive program and she owns her own project management company. Oh, wow. She's an engineer initially uh, by trade. But uh, she and I connected. I reached out to her and I say, hey, I really like your your YouTube videos on project management, her training. She does excellent trainings. And she did a talk at Emory alumni event and I attended and I say, hey, I would like to have coffee with you. Can we sit down and chat? And from there, I said, love for you to mentor me through this process because, you know, I've started over several times. And I really want, and I've gone back into the typical nine to five. She said, well, I haven't had one in almost 20 years. Wow. <laughs> so uh, just, just she's mentoring me in so many different ways. But what I'm getting out of it is the fact that she says, They'll, you got to stick with it. If it's something you're really passionate about, don't allow, you know, the current situation and things are not going right. But she's saying, you're going to make mistakes because those mistakes are supposed to help you you know, get better. Absolutely. And that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just curious, did you have any mentors early on in your career or did you primarily have them later on in your career? I had them early on in my career, but early on in my career, I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> so the mentors I had at that time were uh, women, um, you know, that I met like undergrad, some professors um, that, you know, were in the legal field because I thought at that time I wanted to become a lawyer. And but they they were strong African-American women. And I still 
got something out of that. It, even though I shifted gears, um, I still got something out of that mentoring relationship that will be with me forever. And it was just having the tenacity and courage to go forward, even when you're the only one in the room. Oh, absolutely. I get that completely. So Edith, as we start to do our little wrap up, I have one last question for you. How do we boost more women to get into um, more decision-making positions, either as entrepreneurs or in corporate America? What do we do? What can we do as women in various positions to help boost other women? What's the best advice you can give for that? The best advice I would give for that would be to, first of all, make women or the young ladies see their value. I don't think in the workplace today, especially in corporate America, I don't think we are recognized for the value that we bring to those organizations. And if we appear to outshine someone, there's always something to kind of push us back to keep us from really uh, being encouraged to, to push forward. So I, I would say to another African-American woman or a woman of color that's working in corporate America and really is, you know, taught between, oh, I, I, I want to do this thing on the side, but then I really need this. I would say, you know, use your current nine to five and, you know, make sure that people are respecting you for your value and do it with the most, you know, utmost professionalism and kindness but there's a, always a way to infiltrate, you know, something in a workplace that's not being done right, especially when you're not being respected for your worth. Um, and just just continue to be, stay encouraged because it's just a part of the journey. It is a part of the journey, Edith. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that would be our daily dose of doing and magic for the day. I just want to add that to women who are navigating through some difficult territory and or maybe in challenging situations right now. Number one, to keep the faith. Mm, yes. And <laughs> faith is important. And then also seek other women mm-hmm. who can help you and who can be a champion for you. I know sometimes it's really hard when you're the only one in a situation and you think you're all alone and maybe you even don't have the level of trust that you might have to want to go to other women in your workplace. And I say, this is where men can also be of value to us, right? right. Um, in my journey through broadcasting, there weren't any women um, mentors for me in higher positions. So all of my mentors were men, but that they helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, there were few who said along the line, Hey, listen, we want to see you succeed. And I knew I could trust them. There weren't a lot, but there were a couple that I could trust and I used them um, and had the, and built a relationship with them so they could champion for me because I think it's important to have someone within the organization. If it's a corporate situation that can champion on your behalf. And if you're an entrepreneur, Surround yourself with mentors and people who've had success, right? That's right. That's Absolutely. Exactly right, so this You're is one been, of my other mentors. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Mentors and I have mentors and I have mentees. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just important that we build this 
larger village of women who are empowering other women. And I know some folks say, oh, that word's so overused. But at the end of the day, we are powerful. Yes. And we can do anything we set ourselves out to do when we come together. And so I think the message of togetherness is truly important as women. And especially today, more so than ever, when women in general are still fighting for their due right, right? We're fighting for equal pay. Right. We're fighting to get into certain C-suite situations, right? Less than one-tenth of a percent of us leading a major Fortune 500 organization. So we've got to keep fighting. The fight is not over yet. In fact, in many instances, I say we're just starting, right? But leveraging the power of sisterhood, surrounding yourself by other strong women yes, is critically important. And that's why what you're doing with this podcast is so, so relevant and need and important for today and what we're going through. Because women, we're not, we're still struggling and, and striving to really get our fair share. Yeah. So it's important to have this type of platform to inspire and encourage other women. And at the same time, um, you know, keep keep putting the message out there that we're here. We're here and we're not, and going, we're not anywhere. going anywhere. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly how I feel about Rise of Doyens. I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation with Edith Love. Edith, if someone wants to get in touch with you. How do they get in? How do they find you? Oh, the okay, best website? way to find me would be, uh, well, my website is being revamped. So the best way to contact me would be email. And my email address is E-L and associates. And that's plural at gmail.com. So it's E-L and associates. I'm sorry, LLC at gmail.com. Okay. E-L and associates, LLC at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for being such a wonderful guest and for chatting with me in the ladies room. And thank you for your authenticity. I think that's really what makes the difference is when we can be open and authentic and share the good, the bad, our ups and our downs. And I hope that those of you that are out there listening have walked away with a little bit of doyen magic. So again, we appreciate you joining us and we look forward to you again. You've been listening to the Rise Up Doyans podcast with your host, Yvette Cook Darby. To learn more, go to riseupdoyans.com. That's riseupdoyans.com. Follow the Rise Up Doyans podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RUD Podcast. The Rise Up Doyans podcast is a production of the Castropolis Podcast Network.